All right, so we are continuing through our study in the Gospel of John. And this is going to be a long journey as we go through this. We're not going to finish it for a couple of years uh, at, at this pace that we're going. But we are enjoying it. I'm loving dig- digging in week by week, studying all the details and seeing what God is going to say to us through his word. And, and that's, what, that's, that's what the beauty of expository preaching is, is that you, 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 you're forced to not pass over the details. You're, you're forced to maybe deal with sections that you wouldn't normally preach from. And, it, and, and we believe that the word of God... As it says in, in Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So we want to look at all of God's word and learn what God would have for us. So this morning, we're going to look at a message that I've titled, Darkness at Midday. Darkness at Midday. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and, and we thank you for the privilege of opening your word. We do believe what your word says, that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's divinely inspired, the very breathed out words of God. And Lord, when we read your word, you speak to our hearts. And I pray, God, that we would be attentive and respectful and that we would hear and receive. We would honor your word, not just to be hearers only, but to be doers of your word. And God, I pray that as we, as we read this section in John 5, Pray that you'd speak to our hearts, that you would change us to become more like Christ. And God, I pray this morning that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I remember it was around 2020-ish, maybe the end of 2019, and I was coming into the office here, and it was... You know, I came in in the early morning, but it got to be about mid-morning. It's the sun's out. It's bright. It's hot. It's summertime. I believe it was summertime. And then all of a sudden, it was dark. It was dark. It was like somebody shut the lights off. And it was this huge storm that was coming in. And I just remember that moment very vividly. You, you walked around. You looked around outside. It was like it was nighttime, but it was daytime and you knew it was daytime, but it was nighttime. You were inside the building and you looked out and it literally looked like, like somebody had shut off the sun for a few moments and the storm came howling through and, and we made it through. And then, and all of a sudden the sun was back out and it was bright again. You've all experienced that. I'm not the only one who's experienced that. I remember, you know, during hurricane Ida, when did Ida come through? It came through during the day. It came through during the day and and there was times where it got a little darker than at other times. But we've all experienced that moment where it's the middle of the day and dark storm clouds come through and now it's it's night. It feels like it's night. And this is really what we're going to look at here this morning, this idea of darkness at midday. We're going to look at a section in John 5 where where it, it really is apparent that there are people that are are not seeing Christ for who he really is. The light of Christ is shining brighter than the midday sun. Wherever he goes, he is demonstrating his power over nature. He's demonstrating his power over sickness and death. And his light is shining bright for all to see. But in the middle of the the brightness of the light, it's darkness. It's complete darkness in some men's hearts. If you remember Luke 23, this is at the crucifixion. It says it was now about the sixth hour, which would be 12 p.m., 12 noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So so it wasn't just during storms where sometimes it could look like it's daytime in the middle of the day. It's at the very crucifixion of Christ. The, The sun's light failed. It was as the sunlight failed and it was midday, but it became dark. And this is what is happening. We will see this as it unfolds, as the story unfolds, when we look into the hearts of the men and women that are in this story. And so this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at John 5, and it's going to be the story of the healing of a crippled man. And many of you have heard this story growing up in church. If you grew up in church, you've heard this story. It's the story of the lame man at the pool of of Bethesda. He was there for 38 years, and, and, and the Lord heals him. And this is what we're going to unpack in John 5. And, and John's the only gospel that gives this account of this lame man being healed. But what's really shocking about this story 
It's the darkness that you see in the hearts of men in spite of the overwhelming grace of God to bring healing to this crippled man. And not only just to this man, but as I said, wherever Jesus has been going, John is only really highlighting a few of the miracles of Jesus. But if you look at the other gospels up to this point, Jesus has been doing many, many, many miracles. And they knew who he was and they they knew about the light of his power being shown wherever he went. So if I were to to distill down what the point of this entire message is, it would be this. This is the main point that we will see woven throughout this whole message. It's this, is that in the face of all that God has done to reveal himself to humanity, some people willingly choose darkness instead of light. In the face of all that God has done to reveal himself to humanity in creation, the Bible says creation itself declares there is a God. In the face of all that God has done to reveal himself, some people willingly choose darkness instead of the light or instead of light. And this is what we will see in John chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 18 verses, the story of the lame man that was healed. And this is is how we're going to unpack it. We're We're going to answer three questions. What do we see? What do we not see? And what do we see? What do we see? What's obvious from the text? What do we see? And then we're going to say, okay, well, what do we not see? There should obviously be something that we see, but what do we not see? Secondly, and then thirdly, what do we see again as we conclude? What do we see? What do we not see? And then what are we going to see? Let's look at the text. We're going to cover the first nine verses and we'll, we'll walk through it as we go through this message. We'll go through all 18 verses. John 5, if you have your Bibles, what is it that we see first? First nine verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Wow. What do we see? Well, first thing we see is that we see the heart of Christ for the one amongst the multitude. We see the heart of Christ for the one amongst the multitude. That's one of the things that stands out so clearly in this text. So let's just, before we, before we unpack that, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. It says that it, it's a feast day. It's, it's, time, it's, it's a time of feast, and we don't know what that feast is that he's going to, to celebrate there in, in Jerusalem. The text doesn't mention which one. And he's making his way to a pool of water. And, and this is not like the pool in your backyard that you might have. It's not, there's no, there's probably not any palm trees. There's, there's probably not nice decorative tile all around. There's not, there's not a hot tub with jetted water coming out. It, this is not a pool like you would think of a pool. So get that out of your mind. This is a very large pool. And we'll see here because there is a multitude of people. A very large pool of water that would have been used for people to come and to bathe, to be refreshed and after a hot day for purification purposes. It was a large pool of water that was used for many different purposes. And it says that this pool was called the pool of Bethesda. And Bethesda in the Greek uh, is translated the house of outpouring. The house of outpouring. And so it says, the text says clearly that there was blind, lame, and paralyzed people that were there. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. And what's interesting is, I don't know what translation in the Bible you have. If you, I would encourage you to bring your Bible. But if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you're going to see that there's a verse 4 that is in your translation of the Bible. But in some translations, like the ESV, the NIV, uh, I believe the, 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 the Holman Christian Standard Bible, verse 4 is not in there. And this is what verse 4 says. It says, For an angel of the Lord went down at, to, to this pool at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, the question to ask is, is why is verse 4 not in, this, in the ESV Bible or in other Bibles, but it's in 
other Bibles. Well, the, the, the earliest manuscripts that we get our Bible from, that, that translators translate from Hebrew and Greek, the earliest manuscripts don't have that verse. And this is, verse 4 is a reflection of a superstition of the time. And we know it's a reflection because if you remember in verse 7, the man, what did the man say whenever Jesus said, do you want to be healed? He said, I have no one to get me into the water when it's stirred. I have no one to put me there. So there was this belief that when the water was stirred and it was stirred and there was this belief that when it was stirred that the first one in would be healed. And so, so, so the earliest manuscripts don't have that in there, but I believe it's because it's tied to a superstition and a belief that would grew up during that time that when the water was stirred, it was an angel that was stirring it. But history tells us that this pool had some springs of water that fed into the pool. And so there were times when the water would be stirred because fresh water would be coming in. And so this is just a belief that had developed over time during this time about this pool. And so this man is believing that if he would get in first, that he would be healed. Either way, we, we believe that this man was believing incorrectly about that. And he was there for 38 years. For 38 years, this one man has lived by the pool, unable to do anything but what? But beg for survival. He's there at this pool. He's waiting for this idea that if this pool of water is stirred, then, then I'm going to be healed. The first one in is going to be healed. And he can't get there. He can't get in. And Jesus asked this man what I believe is a very shocking question. He asked somebody that's been sick and crippled for a very long time and says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? What a question. To somebody who's been sick for 38 years, been crippled and lame for 38 years. What is the man's answer to the question, do you want to be healed? He says, I have no one to put me into the water. And, when I, and whenever I get close, somebody steps in front of me and bumps the line. And what is Jesus' answer to the man? Get up, take up your bed and walk. Get up, take up your bed and walk. It's powerful. The man, Jesus says, you want to be healed? And the man says, I don't have any help. I can't be healed. Jesus says, okay, look, just get up, take up your bed and walk. And instantly the man is healed. He's no longer crippled. He can walk. So, so what, what do we see? That this first thing I think we see that is so powerful in this text, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the healing and, 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 and some more details in that, but I could not get past this first reality of the text It says that there was a multitude of invalids and then there was one man that was lame for 38 years. A multitude, but one man. What we see right away in this text is that the Lord has the heart, has a heart for the one in the midst of the multitude. Jewish tradition would say that the word multitude would be used to describe 10,000 people. So like I said, this is not like your pool in your backyard. This is thousands of people, a multitude. It didn't say there was a few people or a hundred people or, or, or hundreds of people. It was a multitude of people and one man. When Jesus is walking to the pool, he has a divine appointment for one man. What about all the other lame people that are around the pool? What about all the other sick people that have been there? Maybe as long as he has been there, Jesus makes a beeline for one man amongst thousands of other people. Isn't that profound to think about? So I always ask the question, why? Why him? I just was, I'll just say what came to my heart was that it was his time. Because Christ chose to set his love and compassion on him at that moment. It wasn't because Christ looked at the crowd of thousands of sick and lame people and said, okay, that guy deserves it. That's the one who's earning my love and compassion right now. That's the one who has proven to me that he has faith. We see nothing of faith from this man in the entire account. Nothing of his faith at all. In fact, we'll see later, we see the opposite of that. But God chose to pursue him with love and compassion and grace in the face of thousands of other people that were lame. And this is something we see throughout all of the gospels that Christ cares for the one. He cares for the one. You know, what's interesting about if you parallel the life of Christ and the Pharisees, the Pharisees cared for the multitude. They were concerned about what the multitude thought. Christ was concerned about the, about the one. 
He didn't, Christ didn't come, Christ didn't come to have the accolades of the multitude. He came for the one amongst the multitude. And you see it over and over and over again throughout the life of Christ when you read the Gospels. It's the one. Where do we see this? Luke 15. Luke 15, the, he, Jesus tells three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. You know the parable. The Pharisees criticized him and says, Jesus eats with sinners and, and tax collectors. And we talked about that last week some. But so Jesus says, oh, yeah, I do eat with sinners. And I want to show you my heart. Luke 15. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the, the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Leaving the 99 for the one. One in the midst of a multitude of sick people. Why? I don't know. Just because God is good. Because God is good. Because God cares for every single individual person. He has a heart for every single person. This is what it tells us. He has a heart for the multitude. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And and I love that that God loves the world and loves the multitude. You can see in the gospels there's times when the the multitude of, uh, of thousands of people would follow Christ. And you see it in the gospels. He would lift up his eyes and he would see the multitudes and he would be filled with compassion for them. But I also love the picture in the gospels where he's in the multitude and he sees the one. Isn't that powerful? Doesn't that speak to your heart? Aren't you, God, aren't you glad and grateful that the Lord saw you? Called you? In the midst of your family, in the midst of your situation, in the midst of all that you had going on in your life, God set his love on you and pursued you when you wanted nothing to do with him and you were not pursuing him. The love of the Father through the Son set his eyes on you and chose you and called you. Amen? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Prodigal son, it's a parable. Jesus says in this story, this parable, he he says one son comes up to his father and says, give me my inheritance now. Give it to me now. Give it to me now. So the father splits the inheritance. The older son stays home. The younger that asks for the inheritance goes and wastes it all in riotous living and unholy living and sinful living. And he finds himself uh, broke and dis- broke and busted and disgusted. <laughs> He's about to eat pig slop. He comes to his senses and he makes his way down the path back to home. He's working up this speech of repentance. And he gets getting close to the father to the home. And he's about ready to share his speech that he's worked up. And he can't even get it out. Can't even finish it. The father embraces him, embraces him and, and puts a coat on him and new shoes and a ring to, rec- to, to represent he's, he's back in the family. And the father, Luke 15, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fad, fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They begin to celebrate because of the one. The prodigal son in this parable did not earn his father's gracious response. And the same is true in this text with the crippled man in John 5. He walks and there's a multitude, thousands of crippled and lame people. There's nothing about that man that stood out and said, heal him, show your grace to him. It was simply because God is good. The Lord goes after the one simply because he is gracious and full of compassion. And the same is true for us that salvation is a gift of grace. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved. This is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God. For the one. For you, for you, for you, for you, right? For the one. And what does that do in our hearts? What does that do in our hearts? It it, it should cause praise and thanksgiving that God chose us. He called us. You ever, you ever got an invitation in the mail? 
You, gotta, you open your mailbox and you get an invitation. You get invited to something special. And you feel like you're so honored that why would they think of me to invite me to that? I, I've, I've thought about this idea of maybe getting an invitation in the mail to the Masters Golf Tournament. I'm going to get it one day. And I, I'm waiting for that day to go open my, my mailbox or, or my, my, my digital mailbox, my virtual mailbox, my email, clicking on it. And it's going to say, congratulations. And I'm going to sit back in my chair and I'm going to say, why me? Why me? Of all the people in the world, I get to go to the Masters Golf Tournament, right? Think about that, that celebrity that you would love to have dinner with. Think about, think about somebody rich and famous and powerful and you get an invitation to come have dinner with them, to be in their house, to spend time with them. And you would think, of all the people, why me? Why us, right? This is the same reality or picture at a very small, small, minicule scale compared to what God sent in your mailbox through Christ, through the gospel, when he opened your ears to hear the good news of his son. Why me? Why? I, I can't believe that you would offer this to me. It's simply too good to be true. And it's simply because God is good and gracious and compassionate to go after the one in the midst of the multitude. 38 years in the same condition, 38 years with the same problem, 38 years with the same issues, 38 years. And I think the same could be true for us. 38 years. Maybe, maybe it's been years. It was years. It was years of you doing your own thing, going your own way, walking in rebellion against God in the same condition, the same position. And then God breaks through through the power of the gospel, opens your eyes. And through faith, you are born again. And so what this really shows us how this meets our world, how, we, how, how this applies to our life is that may we always remember that no one is too far gone for the Lord to pursue and to work powerfully in their life. No one. No one is too far gone. 38 years, same condition. Can you imagine? Every day, every day, no healing. Every day, no healing. Every day, no no deliverance. And you're looking at people in your life, and you're like, every day they're still hard-hearted. Every day they're still not wanting to hear or to listen. Every day, 38 years. And in a moment of time, the Lord of creation walked into that pool with a multitude of people and set his love on that man and brought grace and mercy and healing. And in the same way, this is what happens with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not deserve it and we cannot earn it. It is simply because God is good and merciful and compassionate. So what do we see? We see the goodness and the grace of God poured out at the house of outpouring. We see the heart of Christ for the one amongst the multitude. And we see, we see it powerfully demonstrated. But what do we, what do we not see? What is clearly missing? This is what we see. We see it. I could have highlighted some other details from this text, but this is what jumped out at me as I read it. The one amongst the multitude, and we clearly see a grace that's undeserved. But what do, what's missing? And we're going to read through the rest of the text, and we'll see that it's abundantly missing as we go through the, the entirety of this story. But what is obviously missing about this powerful demonstration of God's grace? What do we not see? Well, secondly, what we do do not see is that we do not see a heart of gratitude and worship. We see God's grace for this man, but we don't see a heart at all of gratitude and worship in this text. Look back, John 5, verse 10. Start back in verse 10. We'll look at the first two verses here, and we'll continue to walk through. It says, so the Jews said to the man who, who, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he, he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Okay, so you guys follow that? He was healed, the one amongst the multitude. The Jews freak out because he's taking up his bed and he's walking. And they come up to the man and they say, it is the Sabbath. You shouldn't be carrying your bed. What are you doing? Jesus tells the man to take up his bed. He's instantly healed. No signs are working for it, as we said Earlier, no picture of faith. You know, there's times where Jesus will say, your faith has made you well. There's none of that here. So you know what that really does? It really tells us that when God's going to heal, he's going to heal with your faith or without your faith. I know that's a little, it's a hard for you to swallow. It's just kind of, you need some water. 
God will do what he's going to do, right? Sometimes we think, well, if I just have enough faith, then God can heal me. This man had no faith and God healed him. So may we never believe the lies of the prosperity gospel that tells us that we have to, if once we earn the right amount of faith and God's up in heaven looking and waiting, okay, so-and-so has enough faith, so now I'm going to heal. No, reject that lie. God healed him simply because he's gracious and merciful. You know what's interesting? In the, in the face of that healing and that miracle, that, that grace of God that that man received. Lame for 38 years, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders that saw it, what was the only thing that they, they can say to the man that was healed? It is a Sabbath and not lawful for you to carry your bed. And so what was the man's response to this accusation against him? What did he say? He said, the man who healed me, he told me to do it. So the religious religious leaders come to the healed lame man and say, you're breaking the Sabbath by carrying your bed. What does the man say? It's not me. It's him. It's that guy. Anybody ever done that before? Pass the buck, pass the blame, right? He said, hey, hey, it wasn't my idea. It was that guy. That guy is the one who told me. So, So what about the Sabbath law? What about the accusation? that the, re- the religious leaders are, 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 are saying against this man. What, what about that? Was he actually breaking the Sabbath by carrying his bed? And, and, and the answer is no. Because later they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus did, didn't break the law, never broke the law. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, right? So they weren't breaking the Sabbath. What was the heart of the Sabbath as instituted in the law of God? It was that is that men and women would refrain from working their regular jobs or where they would gain their, their income and, their, and, and get their produce and their livelihood from, that they would refrain from that for one day a week for the sake of rest and honoring the Lord and putting God first. So it had to do with their regular work, that they would stop their regular work. And what happened was, was, that, was that the Pharisees created 39 extra stipulations added to the Sabbath. And one of the stipulations, one of the 39 stipulations that they added on top of the heart of the Sabbath, which is rest from work, was one stipulation was that you could not carry goods on the Sabbath. Could not carry goods. And so when they, the, the reason they believed the man broke the Sabbath was that he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. That he was healed, miracle, 38 years crippled, picks up his mat and walks. And all they can say is, uh-oh, he's carrying his mat. He's breaking the Sabbath. And what's interesting, though, is that the heart of the Sabbath was not broken because this man never got any income from carrying his mat. Right? He never received any income from... He was not a professional mat carrier. He was a professional paralyzed man. And the Pharisees come and they say, you're breaking the Sabbath by carrying your mat. Do you see the blindness there? And this is the darkness of false religion. One writer says this about false religious systems. He says, false religion cannot change the inside, so it is left to manipulate life on the outside. The Bible Exposition Commentary puts it like this. Jesus deliberately challenged the legalistic traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. They had taken the Sabbath, God's gift to man, and it transformed it into a prison house of regulations and restrictions. They had taken the heart of the law of God and they had added stipulations and traditions, oral traditions and ideas and they beefed it up to look a certain way on the outside but they missed the heart of what God was trying to do on the inside. Sabbath was for man, not for God. Not so that we could demonstrate to God something. God gave us Sabbath for us so that we could receive rest from our labor. So the man healed by Jesus says, It wasn't my idea to break the Sabbath. It was that guy. That guy told me. Okay, so what guy? We'll look back to the text. Look back. Pick it up in verse 13, John 5. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. He didn't know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place, right? There was a multitude. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Look, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus 
who had healed him. The man didn't know it was Jesus who healed him. You know what's so powerful about this story? Jesus finds him again. He finds him again. You saw no faith for the healing. You saw no recognition of the crippled man, of who Jesus was. Jesus heals him. And when he's questioned about the healing, he said, look, I'm not the one encouraging breaking of Sabbath. It's that guy. So the, the, the healed man now goes to the temple and Jesus comes and finds him again and says, see, you're healed. Look, that is so powerful. Jesus is giving this healed man another opportunity to give praise where praise is due. He's giving him another opportunity to recognize who he is, to acknowledge where this healing came from. Another chance. Jesus is again giving this man another chance to do the right thing. See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What, what, what does that mean? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. You know, in John 9, and we'll study this later on, as you get through John, uh, the, the man born blind, the, 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 Jews, the, the, the disciples asked Jesus, whose fault was it? Who sinned? Was it his parents or this man that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it was because of nobody's sin. He was born blind simply so that the glory of God would be revealed in his life. In this instance, Jesus says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So it is possible that maybe it's because of sin this guy was was sick. It's not really clear in the text. But what is clear in the text is that what Jesus is saying to this man is is that if you don't deal with your eternal reality, there is something far worse than being crippled that is coming for you. There's something far worse than being lame for 38 years. Sin no more. Walk in faith. Acknowledge God. Right? Or something far worse is going to happen to you. It's called eternal judgment. We're going to look at that next week. Come to service next week for a talk about the judgment of God. This this is the healed man opportunity to place faith in Jesus. It wasn't his faith that got him there but simply a demonstration of the grace of God. And now the grace of God is giving him an opportunity to place faith in Jesus. And what was his response? What was his response to the opportunity? See, you're well. Sin no more. What did he do? Look back at the text. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So I want you to stop for a moment and think about this. The man is healed. The religious leaders come to the man and say, you're guilty for breaking the Sabbath. And the man says to their accusation of breaking the law, it wasn't me, it was some guy. Well, the some guy shows up and reveals himself to the man and says, see, you are healed. And what is the man's response to that? It was Jesus. He's the one that's guilty. Wow. Not only is the man not giving thanks to Christ for the healing, but he's throwing him under the bus. He's betraying him. He knows the religious leaders are saying that the Sabbath has been broken. So instead of praising Christ, he's betraying Christ. He's going and getting the religious leaders and saying, oh, by the way, just so I can make sure you understand it wasn't me, it was him. It was him. Do you see that? It is so stunning. It's so profound to see that it stands as an obvious missing piece in this whole account. Where is the gratitude? Where is the worship? Where is the faith in Jesus? And instead of faith, betrayal. Instead of faith, betrayal. The gospel, the gospel show multiple accounts of people who got it right. Multiple accounts of people who didn't do what this crippled man did after he was healed. One of them that stands out, I, I referenced John 9 and the man born blind. You, I, I love that story and I've, I've talked, I've preached on it a few times on Sundays and, and, and I love the account. He's healed and there's this argument between him and the Pharisees and the Pharisees and the and, and the man's parents, and it finally comes back to him a second time, and it culminates in the conversation uh, of ultimately the Pharisees casting him out of the temple. As a Jew, you cannot worship. You've been disbarred from the temple. 
I love this. Look, look at John 9. Verse 35, the conclusion of the story. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. This is so good. When I read this, as I studied, I was like, it's the same thing in John 5. The crippled man was healed. Jesus goes and finds a crippled man again. And what does a crippled man do? Jesus is guilty. Punish him. He's the one breaking the Sabbath. John 9, the man born blind is healed. He gets disbarred from the, from the temple, right? And Jesus comes and finds him again. What does the man born blind do? Jesus said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is it, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Wow. I, I guarantee you, if the crippled man for 38 years could get a do-over, he'd be like, God, give me a do-over, please. Give me a do-over. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe, and I will worship you. It is, it's obvious that gratitude was missing. Remember the 10 lepers that were cleansed? You remember 10 lepers were cleansed and only one came back? You remember that Luke 17? Then one of them, when he saw that, that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice, fell on his face at Jesus' feet and giving him thanks. And, and, and what did Jesus say? We're, we're, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? We're, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, the Samaritan? Wow. So what do we see? We see God setting his mercy on the one in the midst of the multitude. And we see the one who received that mercy and that grace from God, not having a heart of gratitude and worship. They're not grateful. They're not grateful. Failure to acknowledge the obvious. Failure to to give thanks. Have you ever been around somebody who's ungrateful? Entitled? Have you ever been ungrateful and entitled? Yeah, I, I have. We all have. My son Lincoln, my four-year-old, is not ungrateful today. If you see Lincoln, what you're going to see on him today, you're going to see on his right hand a Spider-Man watch. And he got it. He got it on Saturday. He got his Spider-Man watch. Was it Saturday or Friday? It was Friday. He got a Spider-Man watch. So he said, I don't know how it started, but he, everything is about Spider-Man, but he wanted this Spider-Man watch. So Estelle, as a good mom, says, okay, you got to work for it, buddy. So he said, you got to do the dishes or you got to clean the bathroom. You got to fold some clothes. And so Estelle calls me on Friday while I'm at work. She she says, Ben, you've got to see this. You got to hear this. This is so awesome. She had Lincoln clean the toilet, (laughs) wash the sink in the bathroom. She had him fold some clothes. And little four-year-old Lincoln sits on the couch, sits back and says, whew, this is hard work. I was was like, are you making that up? Did he really say that? This is hard work. He really said that. This is hard work. Hilarious. And so the last chore he had to do was on Friday, he had to help Estelle clean our garage storage. So he he helps her clean the garage storage. And so I went and got his Spider-Man watch. And I want you to know that buddy is grateful. He does not take it off. For the last two days, he sleeps with it. First thing Estelle said when he woke up this morning was he looked to make sure his watch was there. Right? He's not ungrateful. Isn't that precious and powerful? But what what a great lesson from a four-year-old for our hearts. You know? That may we not be like the crippled man that was crippled for 38 years and did nothing to earn it. Didn't have to work, didn't have to work for it. Lincoln had to work, work for the watch. And he's so grateful. This guy didn't have to work for anything. And we see no worship, no praise, no gratefulness. May we never, this applies to us so clearly, may we never forget that it is only by grace that we are even here. Only by grace. So what, what, what do we see? We see the heart of Christ for the one in the midst of the multitude. And we, we don't see, what we do not see is, is the one man demonstrating gratefulness and worship to Christ. What else, do we, what else do we see? Let's look at the third thing. Let's look back at the text, John 5, starting in verse 16, the conclusion of the story. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus answered him, my father is working until now and, and, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we see, we don't see, and we see. What do we see? The third thing we see that stands out is that we see spiritual darkness in the face of the midday sun. We see spiritual darkness in the face of the midday sun. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Why? Because they believed that he was breaking the Sabbath, but in actuality, he was breaking their man-made traditions. He was breaking their man-made stipulations. He wasn't breaking the law of God. God doesn't break his own law. This is why they were seeking to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So you see persecution. They're persecuting him. They're rejecting him. They're talking bad about him. They're, they're spreading rumors and lies about Jesus. This persecution, this persecution. And Jesus answers, and it's interesting because it says he answers them. That means that, that he's having, they're, they're coming and confronting him about this. We don't see the confrontation, but we see the answer. It says, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. What does that mean? It's really shocking what it means. It means two powerful things. One, Jesus is telling these religious leaders that his father, he, which he, Jesus is saying is God, works on the Sabbath. <laughs> wow. Can you believe that? What a shock to these people. To these leaders. He says, the father's doing good on the Sabbath. God does good on the Sabbath. Which of you, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, have a, have a sheep or have an animal that gets caught in a ditch, you're going to pull it out on the Sabbath? The father does good on the Sabbath. And the second thing that's the most shocking thing is he says, the father is working to now. And he says, I am working also. What does the text say there? This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to call him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. The father is working till now doing good on the Sabbath and I am working as well. Me and the father, we work together. And now the persecution switches to murderous thoughts. This is why they were seeking all the more to kill him. Persecution, then murder. Persecution, then murder. It now moves from a desire to persecute to a murderous desire. They sought all the more to kill him. The lame man, now healed, failed to honor Jesus and thank and praise him. Instead, he betrays him. But these Jewish leaders had stepped over to another level of spiritual darkness. Another layer. Another layer of spiritual darkness. You know, you, you, I do believe there are layers of darkness. There's depths of darkness that people can walk in. The depths of, of, of deception from the enemy. And there, it, it's another layer of, de- of, of a depth of deception and darkness. And we're going to see later on as we go through the Gospels, we're going we're, we're, we're to get further on in John. And they're going to they're, they're begin, they're, they're gonna begin that the, the hatred for Christ is going to begin to increase more and more and more. We're going to see it unfold as we continue on. But we, 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 we see this depth of darkness throughout Scripture if you remember King Saul, first king of Israel, he rebelled against God. He did not honor God. He went his own way to do his own thing. And look at 1 Samuel 16 says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. There was another depth of torment and darkness in the heart of King Saul. And you, it culminates in 1 Samuel 28, where King Saul is even inquiring from a medium. He goes on, he, he moves away from, from worshiping the one true God and inquiring of God the way that God designed for him to be inquired through the priesthood. And now he is going to a medium, to a fortune teller, to, to hear from dead people. You remember Judas? What did Jesus say? Here's another example in New Testament of a layer of darkness increasing. Jesus says, when he's at the Last Supper, one that's at the table with me will betray me. And they said, who is it? Look at John 13. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. The rejection of God and his will and his plan and his grace. Layers of darkness in the face of the midday sun. You see it increasing in these religious leaders. They're rejecting Christ from persecution to murderous desire. It's one thing to persecute, but it's another thing to wish someone dead, to, to seek him, to kill him. Layers of darkness, increasing darkness. Do you see the increasing darkness in our world today? Can you see it? It's not getting lighter and lighter. It's getting darker and darker. How do you know? We saw it on full display last week. Justice Alito had his, had his opinion, had his draft opinion on Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade was leaked. You guys all heard about it. You have to be living under a rock to have not heard about it. So it was leaked. And what you saw in the aftermath of a leaked opinion about what the majority of the court may do to overturn Roe v. Wade, what you saw in the aftermath was stunning. We know it's there. But when the darkness comes out to parade itself, it's stunning. There was a commentator I was watching as it was starting to unfold. The commentator was talking. And there was protests that had already begun to take place at the Supreme Court. And the commentator, the newscaster said, look at all those former embryos protesting. And it just stuck with me. That phrase stuck with me as I was reading this and I, I, I was, as I was studying this and thinking about layers of darkness and, and, and obvious truth in front of people, right? Like we see in the life of Christ here in John 5. Obvious reality, but in refusing to honor Christ, refusing to see the reality of truth in front, right? I kept thinking about that. Like this is a perfect example of what we're talking about here. People willingly rejecting the truth in the face of how God has revealed himself most clearly through creation. But this is, how I, this is what I would add to that commentator's thoughts. I, I would say it like this. Here, here are a bunch of former embryos using their constitutional rights to use their God-given voices to shout their belief that some embryos should not have those same rights to use their God-given voices one day. You can't see that because you're blinded to see it. You can't see it when you're fighting against life. You are forgetting that you were once in that same position. It's a depth of darkness and, and it should cause our heart to be grieved. Not angry at those people, but, but compassionate and grieve for them. That Lord, open their eyes to see the deception that they're walking in. So, so we, we will praise God and thank him if Roe is overturned. Absolutely, we'll praise God and thank him, but... You know, the, the tragic reality is that abortion will continue. It will be state by state. This state and that state or, that, or any other, you know, other states will make the laws, right? Which is what should happen. But abortion will continue. Why? Because the darkness that dwells in the hearts of man remains. Until. Until. The light of the grace of God shines on the one in the middle of the multitude until the light shines again in that heart and in that heart and the blinders are removed and people can see, people can see and they can know, they can believe and they can come out of the folly that they walk in. So I'll, I'll just say this here just to c- conclude this thought here. I'll say this. If you, maybe you're, you're one in the multitude who, who has had an, an, an abortion, I'll just tell you today, today our Lord offers his forgiveness and his grace. So maybe you are that one. And Christ says, I came for you. I came for you. So, so what, what did we see as we conclude here this morning? What, what did we see? We, we saw the grace of God for the one in the midst of the multitude. Undeserved mercy and grace. And what did we not see? What was so obviously missing for the entire story? Not only did he not give praise to the face of Christ, but he turned his back on Christ and told the, the religious leaders, he's the guilty one. He's the one that you should go after. It was not me. It was him. It was that God. Not only do we not see gratefulness, but we see betrayal even. 
And what do we see? We see, lastly, we, we saw a depth of darkness in these Pharisees. In the face of the brightness of the midday sun, in the face of Christ looking at God incarnate, they still reject Christ and they want to kill truth. In the face of all that God has done to reveal himself to humanity, some people willingly choose darkness instead of the light. Willingly choose darkness instead of the light. The religious leaders of the Jews refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and this lame man, healed by the grace of God, inexplicably does not praise or give thanks, but instead turns on Christ. So, so as I think about how we're concluding, what, what, what is the call to us today? What is the call to us? I believe our call, we, we, we find it in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. You see the connection there? Saw my works, saw my goodness. John 5, right? Saw my works. The Pharisees in the life of Christ, they saw his works. Therefore, I was provoked against that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the call for us today is to hear his voice and to listen and to not harden our hearts. And the call is to thank him and praise him for his grace and for his goodness. Amen. The call is to not be, the call is to not be like the man that was healed in John 5. The call is to be like the man in John 9. And to give God praise and thanks. Has he not been so good to us? Just think and ponder about his goodness. And I know there are things that you walk through that are challenging and difficult right now. And I know that We all go through difficulties right now. But if we would stop and think and we push through the weeds of the challenges that we face, we would just stop and evaluate the goodness of God in our life. We have all the reason we need to thank him for his goodness. Amen? So what I want to do is I want to end singing a song about the goodness of God and our thanksgiving for him. So would would you rise to your feet and let's sing together. God, you're so good to us. It's so good to us. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, may this Mother's Day, as we spend time with our family, may we reflect on your goodness in so many ways, in so many ways. And may we not have hearts that are hard as in our times of rebellion, but may we remember Calvary. May we remember the cross. May it inform our praise and inform our worship. May we always declare your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I love you. We'll see you next week.